I am back with you today after having spent a few days at the National Leaders Council meeting. That's the Council of Ethical Culture Leaders all across the country. We gathered in northern New Jersey for a few days, and actually one of our company, Joy McConnell, is visiting with us today. I just want to say hello to Joy and say we're so glad to have you with us this morning. Joy has been an ethical culture leader for many years. is a, a great mentor and friend to me, so thank you for being here. We spent those days together planning for the movement and also storytelling, really, history telling about ethical culture and the earliest years and the days since then about ethical culture leaders who have gone before and those we have lost recently to death. We meet uh, at, at Murray Grove, which is actually a Unitarian Universalist heritage site and retreat center there in New Jersey. It's the spot where, um, as legend tells it, the one and only Universalist miracle happened. <laughs> they, they tell the story of a, a farmer, Thomas Potter, who was just hoping that somebody would come and preach the gospel that he wanted to hear, which was the gospel that all were saved, that none would go to hell. But he didn't know anybody that preached that gospel, so he just built a chapel and waited. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then John Murray, uh, who had been preaching that gospel in England, uh, left England, um, I think, to escape debtor's prison, actually. Um, and his ship ran aground in Murray Grove, and so he met the farmer Thomas Potter, and Thomas begged him, learned of what he did, and begged him to preach at his chapel that Sunday, and John Murray said, preaching that gospel has gotten me nothing but bad news and apparently a lot of debt, and uh, and I won't do it anymore, and he said, well, well, please, if you're here on Sunday, so John Murray said, well, if the winds don't change by Sunday, well, the winds didn't change, and so John Murray was unable to sail away. <laughs> from that destiny in his ship, and preached what is known as the first universalist sermon in America, lo, these many years ago. So Murray Grove is this site that's come up to remember that story, to remember the one miracle, uh, and the birth of universalism in America. And it's a beautiful place to be, actually. It's a beautiful place for a, uh, for a retreat, partly because it's right next to a cemetery, And so in quiet moments during breaks, you can go and wander through. And you can see the little chapel that Thomas Potter built, just hoping, (laughs) that was eventually filled. And then you can see all of these gravestones wander around and see what's written there. I don't imagine, when I think about my own death, I don't actually imagine myself in a cemetery. I'm sort of more on the cremation end of things, maybe a bench or a green burial, you know, so I can become a tree even faster. But there was something wonderful, actually, and really beautiful about being able to wander among those headstones, to see the names there, the relationships etched into the stone, mother, infant child, beloved brother. 
I got to talking about cemeteries with the other leaders. Some of us were preparing our platforms for that Sunday, also in breaks. So we'd sort of go walk in the beauty and then come back and stare at our laptop. And uh, more often than not, chat with each other about what we were doing. I'm afraid there was maybe more chatting than actual working. So we started talking about cemeteries. Joan Johnson Lewis, who's the leader uh, now at the Brooklyn Ethical Society, was talking about the Bohemian Cemetery outside Chicago when she served that society, where Bohemian immigrants had been burying their dead for generations. And she said, in that cemetery, people put pictures on all the stones, encased in a special kind of glass, you know, so that they would be preserved. Pictures of the people buried there at a key moment in their lives. And I've seen that in cemeteries, too, a picture of the person, not just words about them. And then, of course, there are the statues and flowers. This cemetery at Murray Grove is very old, and so there are some of the family plots with gates, you know. You can walk in and then see the family as it's unfolded over time. And then the phrases that people have chosen. I always think that's fascinating. Words, perhaps, that those people had planned for many years to have etched on their headstone, or words that family and friends in the midst of grief had chosen, hoping to find just the right ones to remember. In the Murray Grove Cemetery, many of the 19th century headstones list the year, month, and days of how long the life was. Even though the birth date and the death date are right there so you could do the math for yourself, But there it was, you know, 40 years, three months, two days, as though every day was so precious, every day counted. I was looking up online different um, different epitaphs. I actually, I have to say, I always get confused between epitaphs and epithets, (laughs) which can be sort of unfortunate to confuse the two. Epithets, just to clarify, because I'm so frequently confused, are, are, you know, like slurs hurled at people, mean things that people say. Epitaphs, usually less so, although you'd be surprised sometimes (laughs) what people choose. I found some as I was looking online that I wanted to share with you. Mrs. Aphra Bain, I don't know who she was, but she lived 1640 to 1689. And they say her epitaph says, Here lies a proof that wit can never be defense enough against mortality. (laughs) Some of them speak to the people who walk among the headstones. Henry Page, who died in 1719. All you good people that here pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so shall you be. Therefore, prepare to follow me. You might know Benjamin Franklin's, which is quite wonderful, actually. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. (laughs) 
There is the beautiful James Henry Lee Hunt who says on his epitaph, write me as one that loves his fellow men. And H.G. Wells, whose epitaph reads, God damn you all, I told you so. (laughs) W.C. Fields is here lies. W.C. Fields, on the whole, I would rather be living in Philadelphia. (laughs) And then there is the beautiful Martin Luther King's epitaph. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. I was writing about this platform on Facebook, as I often do, and my, uh, my husband's aunt wrote to me and shared a story <clears throat> about a friend of her son's who had died in early adulthood, after a long battle with cancer. She told this story, and I, and I share with you what her headstone reads, which was something she said, this young woman, throughout her illness. Life might not be the party we asked for, but while we're here, let's at least dance. That woman, I say her name to remember her, Brooke M. Bowley. Life might not be the party we asked for, but while we're here, let's at least dance. Those are good words. Epitaphs, you know, are sad and inspiring and uplifting or funny and slightly ridiculous. They're intended, I suppose, to encapsulate a life, to leave a legacy for those that walk among them and read them. And we might, when reading epitaphs, when hearing them sung or spoken, we might imagine planning for our own epitaphs, for our own deaths. And indeed, there are practical reasons that planning for our deaths can be a deep and meaningful gift to our family and friends. Some of you have participated before with Marty Brockaway, who created a beautiful document for us here at West to use in planning for death, an ethical will and advanced directives, ways to leave a legacy. You might know, too, about the Compassion and Choices movement, formerly the Hemlock Society or the Death with Dignity movement. It's gotten a lot of press recently, actually, because a young woman has moved to Oregon with her husband and parents so that she can choose the time and terms of her death, which is certain. As she says, I don't want to die, but I am dying. This young woman has taken her story to the world in an attempt to help others understand what it feels like to be her and the choices she has. And then there are some wonderful books out there, Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, which is about really the ultimate reality of our mortality. He's a doctor who writes about interacting with the medical system, a system that sometimes wants to say it ain't so, (laughs) and finding a way to search for meaning and care in the reality of death. I encourage you to think about some of those most practical tools as we imagine and plan for our own deaths, 
which surely will come one day. Marty Brockaway will share actually those documents and planning resources this coming January after Platform. We'll have a workshop on the 25th, and I encourage you to attend. But planning or thinking about our own death means, too, imagining what we might want to do while we live so that we have the epitaph we wish for when we die. I took a tour recently of Winter Tour, this beautiful old house, and there was a painting there. They collect American antiquities. There was a painting done of a young man standing by his own grave marker, already built. That's how he wanted his painting to be done. There's something so amazing in that. There he was, and, you know, he was young and healthy, but with full knowledge of what would come eventually. One of the other things I did to prepare for this platform was take the Facebook quiz that tells you what your epitaph would be. It's um, highly scientific. (laughs) And it's really um, an excellent research and preparation for this kind of uh, work and thinking, as you can imagine. I, and some of you who also took it, so don't be laughing at me. (laughs) I got teacher for all as my epitaph. I thought that was very nice. Someone else had beloved by friends and family. None of the epitaphs that you could get, depending on your answers, were anything but laudatory. (laughs) And we were talking on Facebook in this thread about, you know, whether we really could even post this. It was a little embarrassing, you know, teacher for all. (laughs) What I thought was interesting about it, though, like most quizzes, was not what answer I got depending on the color turquoise that I liked and the movie I'd seen most recently. But what I thought about the result. Did I want to be teacher for all on my gravestone? Or would I rather be beloved by friends and family? You know, how do we want to be remembered? We are listening this morning to a series of epitaphs The scene, as I set for you, imagines us walking through a cemetery ourselves and reading what we see there. Some of the language on those epitaphs aren't totally Wes's language, both some religious language we don't typically use here, and also language to describe people, which is no longer acceptable. Coming up, you'll hear an epitaph beautifully and compassionately written about a midget That language is no longer acceptable. The condition, as you may know, is called dwarfism. And within the community, most people refer to themselves as little people and prefer that language. But still, there's something timeless and true, I think, about the words and the poignant and sweet music they're set to. And I invite you, as you listen to them, to think of them as the author intended, walking through that cemetery and noticing. To hear in the epitaphs the lives they describe or the people who remain behind and miss those lives. The epitaphs are like life and like death. Sweet, funny, tragic, beautiful, and sad. And so we listen 
As I was talking with various folks about this platform, several different people sent me the following little piece, which is by Victoria Safford, a Unitarian Universalist minister in Minnesota. Here's what she writes. In a cemetery once, an old one in New England, I found a strangely soothing epitaph. The name of the deceased and her dates had been scoured away by wind and rain, but there was a carving of a tree with roots and branches, a classic 19th century motif, and among them the words, she attended well and faithfully to a few worthy things. At first, this seemed to me a little meager, a little stingy on the part of her survivors, but I wrote it down and have thought about it since, and now I can't imagine a more proud or satisfying legacy. She attended well and faithfully to a few worthy things. Every day I stand in danger of being struck by lightning and having the obituary in the local paper say, for all the world to see, She attended frantically and ineffectually to a great many unimportant, meaningless details. Well, (laughs) certainly many of us feel like that. I do sometimes. That our epitaph, if we died right now, wouldn't be quite all that we had hoped. Whether for silly reasons, our frantic and ineffectual, what was it, frantic and ineffectual attendance, or for bigger reasons, too. Our family life is not what we wish our career, not where we had hoped our love life not what we imagined, or just who we are in our lives right now. It's not how we thought it would be, not how we would want to be remembered. And sometimes we can make changes in all of that. Sometimes, actually, an awareness of our own death, an awareness brought on, perhaps, by the death of a loved one, or by your religious community talking about death for an entire month. (laughs) Sometimes that awareness of the brevity of life, really, can help us to make changes, can help us remember what's most important, how we would want to be remembered on our headstone. And sometimes not. Sometimes life is not transformed, not by wishing it so or by working hard to make it so. Sometimes we just can't shift everything. Not right now or not ever. And so part of what we do then is sit in the knowledge of that imperfection. Our memorial services in ethical culture, they speak to the wholeness of life, not just to the part we'd write on our headstone. 
And I think for many, the deepest part of the service is that we acknowledge that wholeness, the good and the bad. We do have in our, in our memorial services that moment where you think deeply about what you want to bring into life from the person that has died, what it is that encapsulates their goodness, that quality of imagination, that spark that you want to live out in your own life. But we also tell the stories of a person not being perhaps entirely a saint all the time, every moment. We tell the stories of the fullness of what life looks like, the fullness of who people are. We try to tell the whole story, the good and the hard. What would we want on our headstones? The hardest part of the epitaphs that are being sung this morning for me are the infant ones. We struggle so when we think of others dying young, when we imagine ourselves dying before the time we have allotted ourselves to have. Part of the struggle I always find is honoring both the completion of life, that a life, however short, is a life unto itself, a fullness there, you know, while at the same time honoring the reality of a life cut shorter than expected, shorter than hoped, that that life wasn't long enough, really, not nearly, sometimes. Frankly, it's relatively rare that life is really as long as we might want. My grandfather died in his mid-80s, but I'm sure he was really annoyed, because he had planned on 100 at least. Nancy Schaefer, a Unitarian Universalist minister, wrote the, the, uh, the book, While There Is Still Light about her own year-long dying. It's a collection of poems and emails writing her experiences through that year, and it is a gift to the world, that book, a gift she gave freely. One of the poems is titled Pathology Report Part Two. She wrote it after hearing her diagnosis after surgery, a diagnosis which told her she had relatively little time. And just before this poem, she has described that the surgeon began that report, you know, brought her into his office to tell her what he had found. He began the report to her with the words, there is always enough time to love. Here's what she wrote, Pathology Report, Part 2. How I have wanted to live. I am, I realize later, in misery that first night. But during the deepest hours of it, as I wrestle the question of how to live through this, even if I can't live through it, I understand this wrestling as perhaps the most significant piece of work I will ever do. Satisfied, I return to sleep. 
By the next afternoon, when I have an appointment with Dr. L, I know what comes first. Living into my own wholeness, which is about calling and which I am certain of. Creating as much beauty as I can, which is about writing and also all other possible kinds of beauty and which simply emerges from me. And being present in relationships, which is about my allowing my own holding of others and being held, and circles back to the love the surgeon began with. If I focus on these, I realize I will live through this, even if I die. A week later, I want to hear the surgeon's words as though for the first time. Tell me about how there will always be enough time for love, I want to say. Start again at the beginning. Tell me about how there will always be enough time for love. There isn't, of course, enough time. Not ever, but that is only because love is infinite. And enough time for it would be forever and ever, with no endings. Nothing that a single life, no matter how long, could encompass. And so I begin to think about my wanderings in the cemetery again, our wanderings together this morning. The thing is, in the cemetery, there wasn't a single gravestone that stood out to me. I took pictures of a few of them as I walked around, ones that I liked the look of. But there wasn't one that spoke to me. It was rather the experience of walking through so many, of seeing so many memories So much love etched into the stone, so many names and dates. Very few of us, none of us, maybe, accomplish in life everything that we wish we would. Our epitaph couldn't possibly show either the wholeness of our life nor the wholeness of what we might wish our life had been. No epitaph shows here lies a person that changed humanity and the world for all time. It's only the epitaphs together that say that. I think the thing that's beautiful about a cemetery is that it's not just one headstone. It's a collection of them. And so I begin to wonder, what if we imagined our epitaphs as a collection, our lives as a collection, each of us telling just one little piece of the human story? Then I think, The chapters might come together little by little and one by one. Unfinished life by unfinished life. To tell a story that continues.